What a joy it is to hear those voices. I love to hear your voices singing. Praise God. Uh, please go ahead and open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. If you are going to follow along in one of the Bibles uh, provided there under the seats, you can find Matthew 18 on page 823. I think it's also printed in the bulletin, uh, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, We are in the fourth of five sermons in which we are studying different texts of Scripture which teach us about an important topic, and the topic is that of authority. Uh, Authority is a good gift of God, but we have talked about how it can be a dangerous gift because of our sinfulness and our uh, evil inclination to use authority wrongly. It is a gift that is confused in our culture and misunderstood in our culture, but it's a good gift. And so we're taking some weeks to think about this matter of authority in a number of different spheres. We've talked about civil authority. We've talked about authority in the home. This morning we're going to consider uh, the subject of a church's authority, congregational authority. Before we dive into that, let me uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look into his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear saints gathered uh, this morning for the privilege of worshiping you together. We pray that your word would be clear, uh, th- that it would be faithful to the intentions of our Lord Jesus and his words and Matthew as he recorded these words. We pray that you'd build us up in the truth, that you would sanctify us. We are trusting in your spirit to do the work. Uh, The flesh is no help at all, but it is your spirit who gives life. So give us life, give us encouragement and strength today. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. Last fall, uh, some of you will remember receiving a strange email from me. Actually, it wasn't me. It was someone posing to be me, claiming to be me, having created an email address that was not mine, but was looked like it closely enough to have you think that it was mine. And they were soliciting, this person was soliciting uh, money from you privately to help me If you're listening on the recording, that me was in a quotation mark there. It wasn't me. But they wanted money from you to help me deal with a charitable cause. Do you remember this, some of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it too. Uh, it It was a case of what we call identity theft. Uh, When I, uh, I was actually at a Glassboro High School football game when I got a text message from one of you, I don't remember which one of you it was first. Hey, I got a weird email from you. And then these texts started streaming in, 20 of them, maybe 30 of them. And we can chuckle about it now because thankfully no harm was done. And no, to my knowledge, no fraudulent money was exchanged and this deceiver did not actually profit. But it was pretty unsettling at the time for me someone who was not me or associated with me at all was claiming to represent me and to speak on my behalf and deceiving others about me. 
That did not feel good. I did not like that. I, I don't know if you have ever experienced something like that. Uh, thankfully, as I said, no damage was done. Uh, my, my trusty go-to guy when there's any technological issue, Matt Hartel got on that quickly. We changed some passwords. I think you it was that sent out an email to the church. Hey, you may be getting a strange email. This is not Larry. Please make sure this is not, this is not Larry. Do not give any money. Uh, and, and so n- no harm done. Sometimes in matters of identity theft, r- real harm is done. The outcomes aren't that happy and they can't just be chuckled at the way we are now. Sometimes real lasting damage occurs because of this sort of thing. But thankfully, there are agencies, uh, there are institutions that are established by our government to look into such situations, to rectify them. Uh, I believe it is called the Federal Trade Commission. At least I Googled it, and that's what I was told. That's, where, that's, what you, that's who you reach out to if you're concerned about identity theft. And they exist, thankfully, to set the record straight and protect uh, the identity of, uh, of its citizens. Now, if such situations are unsettling and, and frustrating, even at times can be deeply painful when real damage is done, how much more unsettling is it when the name and identity of the Lord Jesus Christ is stolen, is misrepresented, is defiled. How tragic, how troubling it is when someone confuses or deceives other people about who he is by claiming to represent him or to speak on his behalf, but doing so fraudulently, either by how they live or by what they say on his behalf. This is a deception, an identity theft, if you will, that is of eternal consequence. I trust that most of you here in this room can quickly think of people. We're not trying to be judgmental or harsh or critical, but I I bet most of you can think of people who say that they are followers of Jesus, but clearly live in ways or believe things contrary to what God has revealed in his word that are to the contrary, of, that, that, that show that this person's profession and the actual reality are not compatible. It's very sad. It's very evil. And, and much damage has been done to the name and the reputation of Jesus because of that kind of hypocrisy. Uh, if you happen to be here this morning visiting us and maybe not sure if you yourself are a Christian, not sure what you believe, but you're come and you're checking things out. This is maybe an unusual sermon to hear about church's authority, but uh, hopefully in hearing a little bit about what Jesus has called his church to be, that might clarify for you what it means to follow Jesus, because we are aware that sadly many people who claim to represent him do not actually represent him. We are aware of that. Uh, we want to guard against that. But what can be done, really, about that? I mean, how do we stop 
identity theft when it's perpetrated against the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this side of glory, I don't believe we can fully eradicate such situations of hypocrisy and misrepresentation. But we can do our part to reduce such instances and work to protect his name and reputation by submitting to the authority of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the head of the church, by submitting to his authority as we seek to exercise the authority that he has delegated to his churches. Because just as there are institutions that we can turn to in a case of identity theft when our identity is stolen, Jesus has established an institution to address identity theft of his holy name. And that institution is the local church. That's what, as I understand God's word, that's what we're going to see as we look at Matthew 18 this morning. Long introduction. Sermon's going to be halfway done by the time I read these verses in Matthew 18. Just so we're all on the same page. Before I read the passage, let me summarize to you what I understand the main idea of this passage to be. And hopefully then as, as we look at it, you'll see it and you'll understand more clearly that main idea. Um, it's, it's a little bit long-winded. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is not the shortest main idea I've ever had. And it's going to be maybe hard for you to follow. And I would just really implore you, because I could tell just the, by the vibe, this is so much better than Zoom preaching. Do you remember the Zoom preaching when I just talk and I couldn't see anybody? I don't know who, I could tell our interaction is that you understand this reality of identity theft. I just want you to keep that before you. This is a big deal to guard and to represent the name of Jesus. It's a big deal. And I hope that you'll just process this and think about this passage with me in light of what a big deal that is. Here's what I understand the main idea of this passage to be in Matthew 18. I know we didn't read it yet. I'm giving the main idea up front. The Lord Jesus Christ has authorized local churches to protect and represent his name on earth by uniting in accountable fellowship with those who profess faith in Christ and excluding from its fellowship those whose lives contradict that profession. I told you it was long-winded. My daughter's like, yeah, yeah yep, that kind of was long-winded. Not picking on you. I think you're not the only one that thought that. I'll say it again. I'll say it a few times throughout the sermon. The Lord Jesus has authorized local churches to protect and represent his name on earth by uniting in accountable fellowship with those who profess faith in Christ and excluding from its fellowship those whose lives contradict that profession. I hope that when we've talked about the passage a little bit, you will understand that sentence a little better. But before we get there, before we get to Matthew 18, the backdrop of this teaching in Matthew 18 is actually found a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 16. Uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 are the only two places in the recorded ministry of Jesus where he actually uses the word church. And I think that instructs us to pay careful attention to what he has to say about the church. 
So in Matthew 16, it's, it's, if in the Pew Bibles there, it's right there on the same page. You don't even have to flip a page. It's right there on Matthew 16. Um, there had been a lot of buzz about this man, Jesus. He was teaching with great authority. He was doing amazing miracles. He was confronting the religious establishment of his day. And there's this, this buzz, this confusion, this what's going on? Who, who is this man? And in Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, Jesus asks Peter, essentially, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me and my identity? And, and, and Peter says, well, they're saying, you know, you're a prophet. He's, he's John the Baptist. He's Elijah. He's another prophet. And Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And for the first time in Matthew's gospel, in the clearest way, Peter identifies who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a big moment. I mean, there's this buzz, but it has never been spoken so clearly. This is who he is, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then right on the heels of that big moment, Jesus says something big. Look at Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, i.e. Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now you just get the sense there. He's saying something big. Right? Peter has just publicly identified and recognized Jesus and he says, you're blessed, Peter. He says, this was, you didn't just come up with that. My father, it's, this is a heavenly revelation. And he says, I'm going to build my church. First reference to the word church in the New Testament. I'm going to build my church on that confession, Peter. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm giving you keys. Keys have to do with authority. If I toss my car keys to my daughter, who's maybe listening in the nursery right now because she's just started driving. If I toss her the keys, there's an authority I'm giving to her in that moment that she's got control of the wheel. Keys have to do with authority. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he says. And your, your actions, this binding and loosing, something's happening here on earth that is reflective of realities in heaven. This is a big deal. But what on earth is he talking about? I honestly am not sure that I would know what he was talking about if we didn't have Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Here is what it says. We're halfway home, saints. Ish, okay, halfway home-ish. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother, this is, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge 
may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now listen to these words and see if that sounds familiar to what we just heard in Matthew 16. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word, saints. That is God's word. That's actually God's word. Okay, amen. Thanks be to God. Praise God. Let's note a few things. We have a local church in view. I say local church when verse 17 says, tell it to the church. This, this doesn't seem to be what people call the universal church. The universal church would be all of those believing in Christ all around the world for all time. This does not seem to be the reference here. The reference here to tell it to the church is a group of people who, who can come together to uh, deal with this situation where this brother of theirs is persisting in sin. So this is a local church. That's why I said in my summary statement, God, Christ has authorized local churches. This is what we would call a local church. And what has preceded the church being told about something is the sin of this one who is referred to there in verse 15 as a brother. Let's just say, to make this a little bit more concrete, let's say he's living in adultery. This is a serious Sin. When we see an instance of application of these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians that they need to deal with something like this because there's a man who is living in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. It's a serious matter. He's, so we, let's just say someone's living in adultery and he's been privately admonished and urged to repent, but he's not repenting. He's persisting. He won't listen. The issue here is that he's not repenting. I want you all to be clear about this because we who are Christians, we who have trusted the Lord Jesus for our salvation, who have received cleansing and forgiveness and adoption into his family, we still commit sins. We still struggle with sin. There's many ways we could be clear about that in the New Testament, but right here in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, we recited this out loud, I think it was last Sunday in our service, we don't often do it, but when he taught his disciples how to pray, he told them to pray, forgive us our debts. So Christians do still struggle with sin. We commit sins. But Christians, real Christians, not imposter identity thieving professors of Christ, but real Christians repent of their sin. They turn from their sin. And yet this one is not. He's persisting. So a couple of others are brought along to corroborate the offense, to urge him, yes, this is sin, repent. This is not the will of God. This is not consistent with the word of God. Repent, but he won't. And that's when it comes to the church. Tell it to the church. The church has an authority here. It does not say, tell the senior pastor. It does not say, tell the elders. 
It does not say tell the small group. Tell it to the church. And if, after all those warnings and urgings to repent, this one who is claiming to follow Jesus, if he still will not let go of his sin, Jesus says the church is to render a a verdict, a judgment about the conduct, about the claim, about the identity of this one who is saying that he's their brother. Let him be to you. What's, is that verse 17? I don't have the verse number in here. Verse 17, thank you. Because it doesn't matter how loud I say this stuff. You understand that, right? It's got to be there in your Bible. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means treat him like an unbeliever. That's what that language meant in that day. Regard him as one who's not actually a brother. Treat him like a Gentile and a tax. Do not be offended, Gentiles. This was a a Jewish thing at this point. Treat him like an unbeliever. And right at this point, right after commanding the church to exercise authority in removing someone from its fellowship and declaring that individual to no longer be regarded as a fellow believer, as a brother, Right at that point, Jesus uses this metaphor of keys and binding and loosing again. He doesn't mention the keys, actually, in Matthew 18, but he does use, mention that function of the keys to bind and loose on earth. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what we see there in Matthew 18 is that the whatever you bind the whatever you lose, is actually a whoever. It's this person who was professing to be a brother, but was living habitually, constantly, unrepentantly in sin and unwilling to let it go. Matthew 18, these words here that we're looking at, is an instance of the church exercising its Christ-given authority. I say Christ-given authority because Jesus says there, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he says in verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. Jesus says, you have my authority to do this. This is an instance of the church exercising its Christ-given authority to protect and to represent his name by uniting in accountable fellowship with those who profess faith in Christ and excluding from its fellowship those whose lives contradict that profession. Now, this is obviously an example of the church excluding someone from its fellowship whose life contradicts his profession. He's claiming to be with Jesus. He's saying, I'm a brother. I'm following Jesus just like you are. But his life, with multiple warnings to turn from serious sin, but refusal to do so, shows that he's not truly representing that name that he's claiming to be. And so the church, in reliance upon the word of God, in submission to the authority of Jesus, this local church exercises its authority to declare that this professing brother is not truly representing the kingdom of heaven 
and the king of heaven the way he says he is. That's a weighty thing. That is a very weighty thing to do. And churches, because they're made up of imperfect, fallible, still struggling with sin people, churches sometimes can get this wrong. We need great wisdom. We must give great attention to God's word and great care is needed. We would never want to break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. But this is the church, this is the authority that Christ has given the church. It's intended to be an act of love. It's not meant to be mean-spirited. It's not meant to be hateful or malicious. Maybe this sounds like, uh, I think it was in 11th grade, I read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Is slap a big scarlet A on this woman and shun her and ostracize her and condemn her all the while they were hypocritically living in sin. The pastor was living in sin. I'm talking about a book. Okay, if you haven't read that book, we, you know, it's, it's history. It's a book. Um, it's fiction. It's not that, that's not the spirit. This is intended to be an act of love for that sinner to wake them up to the seriousness of their sin. Love for, love for the church that they might guard the name and the reputation of Jesus. Ultimately, it's an act of love for the Lord Jesus because we're concerned for his reputation and how it would be defamed by one who says to be a representative of him but is living contrary to his word and his will. Such actions are certainly not esteemed highly in our day where we love what we call expressive individualism, which is I get to define who I am and nobody can tell me who I am. It's actually very God-like, isn't it? I am who I am. That's what God says, actually. But our culture is teaching people to, that it's like a virtue to decide that you are who you are. We love people who define themselves, self-loving, self-defining, self-determining. And this is a hard teaching because it's, it's addressing someone saying, you're not what you say you are. But it's what God's word says. The authority to do that, to say to someone, you are not what you profess to be. You say you're a brother, but you're not living like it. The authority to do that presupposes, it implies, that the authority to unite in accountable fellowship with one who has professed in Christ, a faith in Christ. I say accountable fellowship Because again, the church's exercise of authority in verse 18 implies that this now unrepentant professing brother at some point had made a conscious, mutually agreed upon public commitment with this church to follow Jesus in a particular way with specific commitments and to be held accountable for it by the church. Otherwise, it really makes no sense that this personal matter of sin would ever be brought to the church. Right? Isn't that a shocking thing? I mean, verse 17 really is a pretty shocking statement if you think about it. Tell it to the church. This is a personal matter of sin in verse 15. It's one person going to one. You're sinned. This is not you know, a public scandal that hits the newspapers and everybody knows about it. This is a private matter. At some point when there's not repentance, Tell it to the church. The church is going to deal with this. Why? What, who's, why? Why would it be the church's business? Well, it would not be the church's business unless the church and this individual had made some kind of agreement together. 
to follow Jesus, to oversee one another, to look out for one another, to encourage and nurture one another's obedience to Jesus in all that he'd commanded. And this one was now abandoning, was turning from that commitment. And so this, this is a congregation's authority to bind on earth what is bound in heaven and to loose on earth what has been loosed in heaven, which means to declare or confirm or to recognize what a true profession of faith in Jesus is and who is truly professing Jesus by the quality and the character of their lives. Let me pause here for a moment and talk to you about border patrol because I know you wanted to talk about politics. No, I'm not talking about politics, okay? I have, to, I have an appointment scheduled next week to go to the Philadelphia Passport Agency to see about getting my passport expedited. I, I have a passport, but it's expired. And unbeknownst to me, this is a whole other long story, I agreed to go on a trip, and I'm going into Mexico, apparently. I didn't know I was going into Mexico. I thought I was going to San Diego to visit a missions training school uh, organization out there. And I'm going with a couple of pastors, and I thought we were going to San Diego. And then I just found out like a couple of weeks ago, oh, we are flying to San Diego, but we're going into Mexico then. You don't have a passport? <sighs> Okay, so you can pray about that. You can pray about that because I don't know what's going to happen at the agency when I get there next week. But uh, the agency there is not going to make me a United States citizen. You understand that, right? They're not going to make me a citizen. I am a United States citizen, but the passport agency there on Market Street in Philadelphia has an authority to publicly recognize me and my status in a way that I personally cannot do myself. I cannot show up at the border, and this is where the, you, know, you want to talk about politics, but we're not talking about politics today, but because it's like, who, who can't get into our country? Really? Do you even need a passport? I understand. I understand. F just follow with me. You understand the train of thought. I can't just go to the border and say like, well, I am a citizen. You don't, you don't recognize me. I'm a citizen of America. No, you got to go to the passport agency. They're going to do their checks. They're going to run their data. They will issue me a passport. They've got authority that I don't. I'm saying that because I do not want you to think that anything I'm saying today about the church's authority, the church does not make people Christians. We don't determine who is and who isn't a Christian. The church has been given an authority to recognize the way a passport agent, agency recognize Jesus to help guard his name and reputation, to guard the borders of his heavenly kingdom. It's a kingdom without earthly borders because it's a kingdom that encompasses every tribe and nation and tongue and language. But to see that the right people are coming in and out, he has given his local churches an authority to recognize professions of faith. Who do you say Jesus is? The Christ, the son of the, who, who wait, wh wh tell me about the Jesus you believe in. He's, is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God? Or is he a rabbi who taught some really good things, but really what he says is wrong if it contradicts our culture? Which Jesus do you believe in? Is he the Jesus who set a loving example for us? And so as we work really hard to emulate his example, he will love us and accept us? Because that's not our Jesus. But who do you say that he is? Oh, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the savior. He is fully God and fully man. And he came and he lived a perfectly sinless life and he died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave and he went to heaven and he sent his spirit and I'm trusting in him for forgiveness and cleansing and washing and I'm committed now to serving him and the strength that he's, oh, you, that's your Jesus? 
That's my Jesus. Let's unite and let's look out for each other and let's guard one another. Let's walk together. And if anybody strays from that, if we stray, it could be two or three, it could be 200 or 300, but when we agree on that, we're a church. That's what a church, what makes a church a church. The, the agreement to care for each other, to oversee, to agree about Jesus, to look after one another, that's the essence of what a church is. That's what makes a church a church. It's Jesus's ordained way of protecting his name from the wretched reproach that identity thieves would bring to it. That every one of his professing followers would self-consciously and publicly humble themselves and protect themselves from the dangers of hypocrisy and self-deception by saying to a group of Christians, i.e. a local church, I'm here, I belong to Jesus. This is the Jesus I believe in. This is the Jesus I worship. This is the Jesus I'm committed to serving. Hold me accountable to those commitments as we seek together to live for him. And if ever you see me straying, you call me to repent. And because we're all struggling with sin, we'll have need to be called at times to repent. Kids, kids, um, do you like, do you ever play pretend? Like pretend that you are somebody that you're not. Maybe you want to pretend to be Jalen Hurts or Joel Embiid. I only know sports people that are famous. I couldn't tell you one, and Taylor Swift, okay, but I don't, uh, maybe. <laughs> Who's got her football priorities straight? Where's Maddie Durr? You love, you love me saying that, right? That's a whole other subject. Kids, kiddo, okay, so I'm sorry. Kids. Maybe you like to play, play pretend, and it can be fun to play pretend. But it is not good. Understand, kids, it is not good when people pretend to follow Jesus, but they're not really serious about following Jesus. Jesus is very wonderful. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us so much, he came from heaven to earth to die for all of our sins. We don't have to do anything to earn Jesus' favor. He loved us that much to do that. And when we see his love, when we receive his love, our heart desires that we would honor him, that we would live for him. We won't do that perfectly, but we will, we will sincerely live for him. We will want to live for him. And as you, as you grow now in your homes, your parents are there to help you learn about the Lord. I mean, we love to have you here, but your parents are the primary ones who are to help you learn the truth about Jesus and learn what it's like to follow Jesus. But as you grow older, we pray and hope that the day will come when you will want to stand before the church and publicly tell the church, I believe in Jesus. I'm living for him. And on that wonderful day, we would, we would baptize you, as Jesus says in Matthew 28. We would baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we would teach you to obey and hold you accountable. Parents explain what hold accountable means. To live for him. That'd be a wonderful thing to look forward to in your lives. And kids, if you want to talk about that with any of the pastors, we would love to talk about that with you even now, about what it would look like for you to learn in your home and in the church about how to live for him. Well, as with every other sphere of authority, there's a lot more that I could say. Uh, would love to widen the biblical lens and show you how this 
congregational authority to guard and to represent the name of Jesus in the world is not just some little niche idea mentioned in two little passages in Matthew, but it's actually like a big part of the whole storyline of the Bible from the creation of the world to the fall of mankind to the raising up and the history of Israel. We read from Exodus 19 to show that Israel had this dignity of being God's representative of people to show his character and worth in the world, but they failed. Jesus came and did it perfectly, and now in unity with him, we get to do that. There's a lot more, just like there was with civil authority and parental authority, a lot more that I would like to say, but I hope what I've said to this point at least helps you to see this is a big deal. And I hope you can understand that main idea. Let me read that main idea again. I hope you can understand it with a little bit of looking at this passage, that Jesus has given local churches authority to protect and represent his name by uniting an accountable fellowship with those who profess faith in Christ and excluding from its fellowship those whose lives contradict that profession. Let me close before we go to the table here with just a few practical suggestions. We call this application. We could just say these are some things that some of you may find useful in stewarding this authority. Maybe you won't find them all helpful, and that's okay. This is not a to-do list of how to be a good Christian this week. It's just some suggestions. It's kind of an abstract, okay, we've got this. I'm I'm a member of the church. What, What do I do? Here's just some maybe ways to help you in your thinking about that. The first one is actually a little bit more than just a suggestion, uh, and it's particularly for those of you here who are not a member of a local church. It doesn't have to be this particular local church, but any local church. I would encourage you, I would exhort you even, to unite with a local church, join a local church. Um, joining a local church, when you hear of the word joining, you might think of you know, a country club or a club or something like that. Um, a a voluntary organization to join with. Take it or leave it. If you like the benefits and they outweigh the costs, go ahead. Um, I don't think that's what we've seen in God's word about the nature of joining a church. Uh, The church is is a visible, identifiable group of people. It's a group who've agreed together about who Jesus is and what their commitments are to him. Uh, If we need to bring a matter of adultery to the church, we don't just sort of throw open the doors at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning and look to see whoever shows up, and that's the church. We've got to know who the church is to be able to handle such weighty matters. And I'm not really sure how you can be accountably obedient to all that Jesus has commanded without that kind of relationship of mutual agreement and public visibility and even, dare I use the word, submission to a local body of believers. Now, I I know in saying that, that some of you maybe are hesitant or resistant to that idea of joining a church because of real hurt that you've experienced in churches. Uh, Maybe abuse, maybe just bad experiences in being a member of a church. Maybe when you hear church membership, you think of a, a, a business meeting where people were just throwing verbal grenades at each other over what color carpet to put in the, new, the sanctuary, and then everybody leaving in a rage, and that's what you think. And then it's, you just, ugh, I, I don't, I like to sing, I like to 
hear God's word preached. I want to have a little companionship, but I don't want to be involved in all the politics of it all. I, I really hear that. I, I understand that that is a hard thing, and I or any one of the elders would be glad to sit with you and help you to process that hurt if you are in that kind of a place. But I don't think that passing on uniting with a church is really an option that Jesus has left open to us. Um, the existence of bad marriage, there are bad marriages. That's a sad thing. Uh, the existence of bad marriages do not excuse um, doing away with the institution and just living in fornication. And the existence of bad church authority, I don't think excuses our, uh, well, not our, the expectation that if I interpreted Jesus' words correctly, the expectation that he has that those who follow him will be visibly and accountably stewarding his name and reputation in the fellowship of another congregation where they've been recognized and acknowledged to be with us. So I would encourage you who are not members and maybe hesitant in that area to just pray about that process that we would love to be of help to you in that. The other ones are going to be more quick, saints, don't worry. For those of you who are here, and it is the, the majority of you, who are members of this church, what does this look like concretely? Again, some ideas that may be helpful, not your to-do list for the week to be sure that you're okay with God. Uh, study God's word. As you are able, study God's word, the gospel, the person of Christ himself, so that you can faithfully encourage and admonish and protect and build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, what a sweet time we just had downstairs listening to Sam. Where, thank you, brother, for just taking us to Philippians 2 and talking about the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. What a good thing it is to just be able to think about that and then encourage each other, as a few of us did at the very end of that time, uh, where was, where's Rob Miles? I know he's in here somewhere. Where, I just saw Rob. There you are. Oh, what an encouraging word Rob gave to us about how we're, we're going to be on the right side. Of his. We, okay, I'm sorry. I told it was going to be brief. We're getting to the Lord's table. i am got you. I'm, 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 I'm on track, okay? Um, how good it is to just be able to encourage each other. And when you, when you read the Bible and you learn and you study, you're not just doing that for yourself. You actually are doing that so that you can help and encourage and bless other people. So we're at different places. Some of us have different reading comprehension levels. We've got different available times. It's no set way, but if you, if you want to learn growing in the Lord and in your knowledge of his word and the gospel, if you just want to know, how do, I, how do I get started doing that? Happy to talk with you after the service, but that's one way that you can apply this authority, this responsibility that we have because of the authority that he's delegated to us. Secondly, uh, make it a priority uh, to attend the church's members' meetings. Not a coincidence that this particular sermon in the series is on the morning of a members meeting at night. Um, I've been convicted. I'll just be honest with you. I have been convicted in studying this passage. Some of you know, I've, this is, I don't think it's, I mean, if you've been in the membership class, I talk about this class, I, 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 I talk about this passage of scripture. This is an important passage of scripture to help me understand the church. I was challenged in studying it freshly this week that our practice, and we've grown in this practice, but I'm just seeing a, a, a need for a little bit more growth, I think, of just sort of sending out an email to acknowledge a new member application and then waiting basically for you to not reply to an email is the way that we unite with one. Maybe that's not the best way to do that representation. Maybe there's a way that we could do that better, and it involves having the members of the church meet together. It is a weighty and serious and wonderful thing when we receive new members or when we have to uh, release a member from 
membership for one reason or another, because they move or because they're having trouble finding fellowship or they're having a struggle in our church, and we have to talk about those things. It's not appropriate to just open the doors at 10 a.m. and just anybody who comes, let's talk about all the stuff. We have to have times to do that. And those times we call members meetings. And so if you are a member of the church, uh, you will help us in this work by making those meetings a priority. Um, I'm not sure what number I'm on, but here's another way. Pray regularly for all the members of the church. Uh, Members, you should all have a directory, whether that's a paper one or an online one. And uh, one of the ways that you can relate meaningfully to every single member of the church. For years I've said, well, we can't really meaningfully be in relationship with each other when there's 185 of us or whatever it is. <laughs> well, we, a- we actually can be meaningfully related to each other as we pray for each other. So as you pray for the other members of the church, maybe you pull up the directory and you see that individual. Even if you don't know that individual well, you can then see that person on a Sunday morning and say, I prayed for you this past week. And here's what I prayed for you. And you're doing that work of guarding the temple, building up the people, encouraging, exhorting. It's not all about excluding people. That's not the point. It's not all about that. That's what this passage is about. It's about something much bigger and sweeter. So pray meaningfully for the other members of the church. And then fifth, and this is related, but seek to, as you have the ability, seek to build relationships with other members of the church where you're seeking to do spiritual good to one another. Um, Give thought especially to those who are newer members in particular who may not have well-established relationships the way that some of us who've been here 10, 15, 20 years have. Seek to build relationships with other members where you're doing spiritual good to each other. We cannot deeply know and be related to all 185 of us, but we can each do our part. Uh, Each member of this church has one 185th of the responsibility to ensure that the other members of the church are well cared for. It's a small part, but it is your part. So uh, we need to get to the Lord's table. And as we come to the table, let's just shift metaphors briefly. Again, I don't want to take Jeff's word. I don't know what Jeff's going to say, but let me just, let's just turn to remembering what an astonishing privilege it is that any of us should be included in his church at all and have the authority to oversee and look after others in his church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is actually speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, but it has application for how we view the church as a whole. He talks about caring for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This This, all that we're talking about here this morning, this is not just administrative mumbo-jumbo church politics stuff. We are talking about how to look after and oversee and protect and build up the blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the quotes that has moved me much in the past few months is by a Puritan named Richard Baxter. Again, this is a word for pastors, but it's actually a word for all of us. Every time, he says, every time we look upon our congregations, and I would just encourage you, look around as you hear me even say this. Every time we look upon our congregations, let us believingly remember 
that they are the purchase of Christ's blood and therefore should be regarded by us with the deepest interest and the most tender affection. And how much more authentically and meaningfully can we actually look around that way when we know we have agreed and mutually committed together to trust Jesus, to rely upon his word, and to hold each other accountable for it. Brothers and sisters, dearly loved purchase of Christ's blood, let us humbly and faithfully and eagerly and diligently steward the authority that he has entrusted to us in view of that staggering reality that we would be the blood-bought ones of God. And let us eat and drink together in light of that as well. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take heed to your word. Help us to apply your word wisely to our lives. Help us to be built up in worship of you as we remember Jesus' body that was crushed and bruised for us and his blood that was shed for us. May we continue to worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.